If you're at all interested in politics or how faith intersects with the public square, the ERLC internship in D.C. is an incredible opportunity that I would highly recommend you uh, consider. It's not just the type of internship that you want to do. Only if you're interested in government can you be in this. But for Christians, this stuff that you know we were learning in this internship can be applicable in a huge variety of areas. And I would recommend anybody who's a Christian who's interested in politics to apply to this because it really is a good way to get practice in certain policy areas and to learn how to be a Christian in a space that's often not friendly to them. Getting to experience people who are fighting the good fight, but also are deeply spiritual and, and deeply rooted in their faith is an experience that I will carry forward for a long time. You should apply because you will become a better person and a better professional. I think there is that dualistic spiritual and professional development that that you're not going to find really anywhere else. A great learning experience about what it looks like in practice to make a difference and to do it in a way that is gospel-minded and method as well. If you're looking for a great internship, especially in D.C. in that atmosphere, definitely check out the ERLC. Coming and working and interning for the ERLC builds so many relationships in our areas of interest that have been super helpful in learning what we want to do going forward, but also just learning how to live out your faith in everyday life. Welcome to Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C., I'm your host, Jeff Pickering. Around the table on Capital Conversations, you'll hear from the policy team of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, as well as featured guests from outside our D.C. office. Our conversations cover the policy debates and news shaping our world as we aim to connect our Christian theological motivations to political engagement in Washington. This is our final podcast of 2019, and we're wrapping up the year. And with the decade. Highlights. Yeah. Oh, in the decade. I haven't even thought about that. Yes, and the decade. And we're wrapping up this decade with a roundtable conversation. I've got Chelsea, Stephen, and Travis with me here at the Leland House, and we're going to be talking highlights from our work. We're going to do some end-of-year recommendations, and then we're going to end with a Christmas section focused on why Chelsea is so very wrong on Home Alone. So, Thank you all for, for coming down here to the studio. We've set and, aside 15 minutes for that discussion. <laughs> 15 minutes for that discussion, okay. but we won't Excellent. go over. So, And Chelsea, we're going to turn Chelsea's microphone off. <laughs> <laughs> Boom, roasted. <laughs> no, no, we, we won't turn it off because a, a good debate, uh, no matter how wrong the opinion is, uh, which Chelsea, do you want to go ahead and just, just tease that conversation up? What, what is your opinion on Home Alone? I hot take do not like the movie Home Alone. Now, see, that's a better way to say it, hot take, because over the weekend she tweeted, fun tweeted. fact. It is a fun fact for me who never has to watch the movie. There is, there is literally nothing fun about that fact. <laughs> I was talking to my husband, Michael, about the fact that I didn't like it. He didn't know that I didn't like it. And then I was like, oh, that'd be funny to tweet. And, <laughs> and then you got ratioed. And then I got... Micro-ratioed. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't yeah. too bad. <laughs> Stephen, what do you think about Home Alone? Do you like it? Jude loves it. And we've watched All both right. one and two several times. But the question was, do you like it? Well, I love it because he loves it. Oh, because you know? he's a good, oh, good wow, father. Oh, wow, Stephen, yeah. you're really hedging there, actually. Yeah. Politics. <laughs> he doesn't want to get dragged in. 
So we will be off the air for the next uh, for the next couple of weeks, so that we can all watch Home Alone with our families over Christmas and uh, and enjoy the holidays. And uh, we will see you in the new year. We plan to be back the second week, the the first full week of January, sometime around Tuesday, January seventh. Uh, And in the month of January, we plan to do a month-long series focused on issues of human dignity as we build up to the annual March for Life. Uh, And as a reminder, as we are closing out this year, and as Travis reminded us this decade, if you have enjoyed listening to Capital Conversations, be sure to subscribe to us wherever you are listening to podcasts. Our hope for these conversations around this table is that they would foster a new way for Christians to engage in the public debates, which I believe are becoming ever more important. And as we head into 2020, let your friends and fellow church members know how much you enjoy this podcast with a post on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, or send them an old-fashioned email or text message with a link to your favorite show. We would appreciate it very much. In addition to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Spotify, every episode of Capital Conversations can be found at ERLC.com. All right, team, for this end-of-year wrap-up, of 2019 conversation, let's begin with recommendations. So we're talking articles, books, and news. Um, so Chelsea, I will start with you. Uh, and this question is to everybody. So we're just, I'm going to say this question and then we'll, and then we'll go around. Uh, so the first recommendation I'm curious about, if you were the editor of ERLC.com, what article would you encourage our listeners to check out and why? So the ERLC does a lot of great work advocating on behalf of adoption and foster care, but an article that caught my eye um, recently was entitled Three Ways the Church Can Advocate for Birth Mothers, and it was written by my friends Brittany and Jen. And I appreciated that article because a lot of what we tend to focus on as evangelicals is advocacy for children or getting the church more involved, and I really appreciated this take talking about birth mothers and acknowledging um, that they are very much part of that conversation and the the story as well. Yeah, I love that. That was one of my favorite things about our uh, podcast with Herbie mm-hmm. is Lifeline's work with uh, with birth mothers. Yeah. Very good. Uh, Stephen, what about you? What article would you like to point people to? Yeah, so I'm taking it back uh, to 2015. There's an article that I Ooh, read. Is this the animal article? It is It is a decade uh, wrap-up. <laughs> yeah, it, it right. yeah, it's true. That's, 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 that's appropriate. Um, no, this is one of the first articles I read after I took my my post here, because I joined ERC in 2015, in July of 2015, the article posted, well, I don't know if it was posted then, but it was written in April of 2015 um, by Dr. Moore, and it was entitled, What Does the Gospel Have to Do with Politics? Uh, and in that piece, he kind of lays out what is really the kind of mission of what we do here. And But he acknowledges, you know, the fatigue of, of many who become disillusioned with the way politics have gone the last several years, you can say the last decade maybe. But he talks about the the, the vision of ERLC and, and how the Christian ought be oriented towards political engagement, not for the sake of viewing oneself as a majority, not for the sake of owning your opponents, but for the sake of human flourishing, dignity, love of neighbor, justice, right? These are themes that that all drive the Christian. Um, and so he, he again, he's, he's trying to, to present this new way of thinking about um, political engagement that I think is fresh and biblical and um, and right. So love it, 
Travis. I'm going to go with Susan Cadoni's article, uh, 10 Requests for Church Leaders from a Sexual Abuse Survivor. Uh, Susan Cadoni has emerged this year for me. I just met her this year as like as one of my absolute heroes. She is a fearless woman. She herself is a sexual abuse survivor, uh, has told her story publicly for the first time this year, um, and has, I mean, I I have learned so much from her, I can't even begin to, to, to walk through all of that, which is why I sort of point to this piece. She covers a ton of ground. I've read it several times. It's an article I come back to quite a lot because I recommend it to people a lot, but um, she helps to she helps those of us who have not experienced um, this yeah. this particular trauma to really understand how we can best serve those who have. Right. I first learned about Susan in the intro uh, to our to our Caring Well report, and her intro, which I don't think was necessarily written to be an intro uh, to that. Uh, to that work uh, was I was moved to tears. I was reading it on a plane yeah. and and moved moved to tears by her story uh, and and her passion. So that's she's a, awesome, and she's a, a and she's a great follow on Twitter too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right, so my uh, article wrapping this up is actually from a a former intern of ours, Danny Park. Uh, Danny wrote an article, How You Can Pray for Those Suffering in North Korea. Uh, Danny is Korean-American, and uh, she was our legal intern this past summer. Uh, and in God's providence, she she was here uh, when we really needed her to be here. Everything from helping us helping us translate uh, different interviews uh, with with uh, with North Koreans who had escaped, and, and Stephen met up with in South Korea, uh, to just all of our all of our work around around North Korea this this summer. Uh, and after all of that, Danny asked if if she could write an article reflecting on what all of these experiences are like for her as a Korean American to watch the United States and the DPRK negotiate, if you can even call it that at this point, which I don't think you can, but. Uh, but Danny wrote that in September, uh, and it ended with specific ways to pray. And I, I just love the anytime you can get a, a first-person perspective on a big national issue. I think that's super, super helpful. Okay, moving right along. And Travis, I'm going to come to you first. We'll go. We'll go reverse order. Uh, what book did you read this year that impacted you the most? Uh, the book that I cannot stop thinking about is uh, this is a it's a couple years old, but it's Francis Fukuyama's book called Identity. And Fukuyama in the book provides a way of thinking about many of the clashes in our culture um, around what he calls megalothumia or the, the, the quest or desire for each person to feel recognized by everybody else. And he gives a lot of examples, and I think it provides an element that an element of understanding the conversation or understanding, you know, each of the sort of cultural flashpoints that we've seen over the last several years in a, in a way that I didn't really understand. And so I, I, I think in some ways, you know, just like any new idea, it's, you know, it's not a comprehensive, you know, it doesn't explain everything, but, but it's a, it's an, it's a set of ideas that's been missing in how I've been thinking about the world. Steven, what about you? What book? Have you been most impacted by this year? And I'm, and I'm laughing because I know you're still reading a lot uh, for your degree. Um, so I don't know if you're reading for for fun these days. I, I would doubt it with with your workload. But of all the things that you've read this year, what's what's sticking with you here at the end? 
I read several times a book by Ibram Kendi, um, who is a professor. I'm blanking on where he uh, is currently teaching. But it's a book entitled Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America. Uh, it's a New York Times bestseller. At least I'm pretty sure it was. Um, but the methodology that he takes, I think, is is really an interesting one because he charts the kind of American history story and presents this history of what he's calling racist ideas from the vantage point of particular key figures in America's history. Um, and so they're, they're like tour guides that are are kind of helping us walk the chronology of the country. But the way in which he kind of teases out the ways in which race has been at play and the different ways in which it has been constituted um, with other um construct, whether it be religion, whether it be um, political identity, um, it helps you see how um, in many ways race has been something that has been really a problematic uh, for the country from the very beginning and the ways in which it has transformed over time uh, and and presents itself even in our our contemporary setting. So Ibram Kendi, um, Stumped from the Beginning, a very impactful book. Chelsea, what about you? There are Two books I will quickly mention. And we've Um, already broken the rules. (laughs) Go ahead. It's fine. I'm going to break them. Um, (laughs) One is Digital Minimalism by Cal Newport. He wrote the book Deep Work, which is a must read for anyone. That book has been really helpful to provide some framework for how I've thought about my relationship with technology. I've not gone as extreme as he has in that book, but it's been extremely helpful. No, nor could anybody. Nor could anyone except for <laughs> Cal. Okay. Um, and then the second one is a book called The Common Rule. Mm. Um, I got to hear Justin speak in person a couple months ago and devoured his book. Within, Justin who? Um, Whitmel okay. Hurley. Dr. Moore actually included his book in his top books of 2019 as well. It really is wonderful. And he plays on the idea of a rule of life. And uh, Justin is a lawyer um, in Virginia and understands the fast-paced culture that we live in in D.C. and, And many people live and work in. And I found myself nodding many times when he spoke and when I read his book of just relating a lot and appreciating his... Yeah, and you know you're doing something right if a book that you read this year and enjoyed is on Dr. Moore's top 10, top 10 list. So, Very I've good. heard good things about it. I want to it's, pick it up. It's really good. Uh, so the book that has impacted me the most this year uh, is The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion by Jonathan Haidt. Another good one. Uh, he's a professor, I think, at NYU, uh, maybe still was at UVA he at was. one point. Oh, yeah, uh, now he's at NYU. Moral psychologist is, is his area of, of work, and... Uh, this book, we read it as a team. It was, it has completely changed the way I think about uh, persuasion. And that's really important when you're an advocate here. And so how do we talk about, how do we talk about the issue of abortion in a way that's persuadable to those who aren't fully on board with our pro-life positions? And I, I won't go into everything that he shares uh, because by the subtitle, it's probably intriguing to a lot of you. It's a thick book, but it it's a it's a quicker read uh, than you might think. Yeah, it's um, it's, it's definitely worth. And it's in three parts, with, so you can just like yeah. read one part at a time. It's almost like three separate books, but it it has been incredibly incredibly helpful. All right, I will I will start for this one, and then Chelsea will make our way around the table to you. And this next question is: Other than Capital Conversations, what podcast are you most enjoying these days? Uh, so I will start here. I listen to 
a ton of podcasts, uh, but one of the ones that's been most helpful to me as hosting a podcast this year has been a daily show with a former talk radio guy, Charlie Sykes, out of Wisconsin, and his podcast is The Bulwark Podcast. Uh, Charlie was at The Weekly Standard and had his daily, uh, The Daily Standard podcast, and at The Bulwark, it's a new media company that a lot of the Weekly Standard guys uh, went to after the Weekly Standard was no more, which uh, we're right at a year of that. Uh, and I love it because it's a it's a daily podcast just talking about the news of the day, and he brings people on from, you know, not all over the political spectrum, but I will say center left to center right. Uh, and there's a mix of views uh, regularly on there also is Jonathan V. Last of the Bulwark, who's who's just fantastic, and I I really appreciate their their perspective. Chelsea, what podcast other than this one are you enjoying these days? I am enjoying the Office Ladies podcast. So good, so, so good. good. I'm a huge Office fan, um, and the podcast is Pam and Angela in real life. Jenna and Angela talking about going episode by episode, giving behind the scenes. It's just wonderful. I'm really enjoying it. And I am too. Yes. Steven, what about you? Yeah, so I, um, rather than like say something that's not true, I don't follow podcasts. I, what I'll do is I'll like tune into an episode that you all like highly recommend. Okay. And you all come in saying, you know, this episode really changed my life, which is typically every other week or so. And I'll <laughs> like follow, like I'll go listen, right? And so the podcast that you all listen to kind of, I kind of follow your tracks. Um, but, but you spend so much time on airplanes and at airports. Yeah, but he watches movies. And reads books. I'm probably sleep or reading a JSTOR article on something yeah. that like Ooh, JSTOR. That just eight people me. are interested in. So All right. um yeah. So I probably should start, but I just Okay. Well these recommendations are for you. Travis, what about you? What podcast are you enjoying these days? Uh the one I'm most enjoying right now is a political podcast called Hacks on Tap. So good. I, I really stopped listening to political podcasts earlier this year because I found I was just listening to the same topic being discussed by different groups of people over and over and over again throughout the week. And so I, I kind of pulled it all back and was looking for that like killer podcast that covered what I wanted. And then David Axelrod and Mike Murphy created Hacks on Tap earlier this year. And it is, it's almost the perfect podcast. I think like the dynamic between Mike Murphy and David Axelrod brings an interesting dynamic out of both of them. It forces them to defend their positions in ways that they wouldn't ordinarily have to do if it was just them. David was a Democratic strategist. Mike Murphy is a Republican strategist. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, it's it's a fantastic, uh, it's a fantastic pod. Highly recommend it. And it's hilarious. It is absolutely hysterical. I mean, but then the format of it is fantastic. Yeah. They cover a lot of ground. Yeah. All right, so uh, is there, this is the last recommendation, and I think it's important going into the new year. So is there a journalist, reporter, or columnist who you follow that you'd recommend uh, people pay attention to in this new year? Travis. The the journalist that I've been following, I think, most closely over the last six months has been Jonah Goldberg. I've, I mean, I've been a longtime reader of The G-File, which is his fantastic Friday um newsletter, but uh, he's, you know, I think in this moment is emerging as as a really interesting voice and uh, somebody who I, I pay a lot of attention to what he has to say. So my recommendation would be uh, uh, a guy by the name of Charles Blow. He's a, He works for the New York Times. Um, he's also an um, on-air, on-screen rather commentator. 
brings a very kind of insightful um, perspective on issues that orient around race, but not exclusively race. Um, one of the, I say what I appreciate about him most is, even at times when I disagree with him, his analysis and his intervention is so insightful that it forces me to wrestle with it uh, and consider the ways in which my own opinion on any given issue um, needs to be adjusted or not. Um, and so typically when individuals are thinking or trying to think about the the social or racial, uh, et cetera, implications of a particular issue or topic, I'll com- recommend uh, Charles Blow if he's written on it um, because he's just very much so insightful in, in his analysis. So Charles Blow, New York Times. I, I, I just, I agree with that. I He drives me crazy sometimes, but I always find myself thinking about his column long after I've read it. I mean, he's... He kind of has a way of of putting a rock in your shoe and just and just helping you to see the issue from the other. I mean, helping you to see the issue from the other side. I am also going to mention a New York Times columnist, and that is David Brooks. Um, he writes on politics and culture and social um, sciences. But I read one of his books this year, and um, he has a column twice a week on the New York Times, and I just enjoy his writing style, uh, what he has to say. And I will round this out uh, with uh, mentioning somebody who's been on this podcast before, and that's David French. David and Nancy are are long, long-time movement conservative. I mean, they've been everything from activists to authors to – I mean, Dave, David's a lawyer. He's also a veteran, and uh, David has linked up recently with, with Jonah Goldberg at their new media venture – uh, with Stephen Hayes and a few other uh, just fantastic, fantastic reporters, all from the center right perspective. But just about everything that David writes is worth reading. Uh, again, another sentiment shared around this table. Sometimes I don't always agree uh, with what David is bringing forward as a perspective, but I always appreciate it because I know he's bringing it from a place of of integrity. And I and I mostly agree. But I would highly encourage people in a raucous election year uh, to be looking for these types of journalists. Uh, and David French is one of those. All right. And so now moving out of recommendations into uh, some conversations about our work. Uh, What is a work highlight from this past year? The highlight for me has been getting to work on uh, religious liberty for in the child welfare space. That has been a huge part of our agenda for the last year. We've made, I think, a lot of progress, certainly on the regulatory front. We've made progress, I think, in terms of the, the the cultural conversation around uh, around these issues, and when you, when you've got divided Congress, it's it's going to be difficult to get a legislative uh, fix or a legislative uh, policy solution on something like this. But I do think that we've advanced the ball in the last year uh, in terms of uh, helping our allies on both sides of the aisle understand this set of issues and think about it in a different way. Definitely. Uh, I'll go next here. My my work highlight from 2019 is uh, I'll, I'll center it around our uh, side event during the International Religious Freedom Ministerial at the State Department, which our side event was focused on religious freedom in North Korea. And this is something that everybody around this table uh, touched on, but it it was it was in some ways the center of gravity of of our work this summer. And it was just incredible to be a part of it, to 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 be in that room during our event when the video of all the interviews, Stephen, that you did uh, was shown, um, and to meet and have on this podcast, Kenneth Bay. 
uh, who's uh, who was a Christian missionary who spent time uh, in in a North Korean hard labor camp, uh, and to hear his story, reflecting on that, and then and then to to be in freedom and continuing to serve North Korean refugees, uh, it was just it was incredible to be a part of, uh, and that was definitely a highlight from the year. Chelsea, what about you? I have really enjoyed um, getting to work on China, human rights, and international religious freedom issues. Um, I study international relations in school, and I really enjoy um, engaging on the international front. And in particular on China, there's a long list of human rights abuses um, to tackle. And we actually, our summer issue of our Light magazine was entirely focused on um, international religious freedom. So I got to write extensively, but we also have done a lot of advocacy on China um, and what's going on with the Christians and the Uyghur Muslims there. Um, so I've, I've really enjoyed that that engagement. Um, and then another work highlight, my husband and I co-authored an article, and I really enjoyed that. On China? On, or on Hong Kong. Hong Kong. Yes, yes. yes. Very good. That was a great article. Stephen, okay. what about you? Rounding out the international theme, I would uh, say with my trip to uh, Seoul, South Korea, yeah, really enjoyed the opportunity. Um, was appreciative of of that opportunity to really go and meet some incredible incredible people and hear their fascinating stories. Jeff, you already spoke about it, but just the ways in which we were able to display, I think the the international reach and in many ways then the the genuineness of a particular motivating theological kind of drive that 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 is it runs along our core and so it was good to see that eventuate in a project like that yeah absolutely and 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 it's cool you know i, I know it it sounded like our work was very international heavy but but i think that that was the highlights and it's cool when i think about what brings southern baptists together in friendly cooperation and so much of that is international work, whether that's defending uh, the rights of people, their inherent rights, or, uh, you know, the most of the money uh, through the cooperative program goes to the International Mission Board headquartered in Richmond, Virginia, because our churches are just really believe in sending missionaries overseas to unreached people groups and, and to defending their, their basic inherent human rights, uh, of which most foundational is, is their conscience rights, their religious freedom rights. Um, so no, I, I, I love that. And I think there's a reason uh, that those, that those types of experiences, trips, articles, events are, are the things that stick out to us. So I love that. Uh, what are we working on uh, right now that's still undone? Well, I, I think one of the things, and I, perhaps, I, well, I think undone does fit. I mean, one of the issues that we were pleased to see significant work done on uh, at the end of 2018 was criminal justice reform in the past passage of the First Step Act. Um, an ongoing question that has been posed since that date has been, you know, then what, what, what next? What will the second step be? In many ways, I think it's appropriate because criminal justice reform is an ongoing project, right? When you talk about reforming anything. Um, um, particularly in this town, reformation in stages is probably the wisest way to go. And so that is an ongoing work that is, yes, you know, quote unquote undone, but the conversations around what the next step needs to be are are, are happening. And those are conversations that we are part of. And I think that will continue into the next year and, and beyond. Yeah, definitely. An issue I am hoping will be done soon, but is currently left undone, is the repeal of the nonprofit parking lot tax. 
uh, which is a small provision in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that requires any nonprofit or house of worship to pay tax on the cost of their parking lot or transit benefits. So we have been working hard for over a year now to get that repealed. So some very fluid conversations with the Hill um, happening right now. So we're hoping that that repeal is included in the end of the year spending package. But we'll see. Lots can happen between now and the end of the CR on Friday. Yeah. Um, I I am going to say that uh, I, I think one of the biggest things that's still undone and, and ongoing is our work uh, to unpack what a pro-life ethic looks like. You know, one one of the phrases that's used often because it's catchy and it rhymes, and we're Southern Baptists, is uh, being pro life from womb to tomb. Uh, but beneath that sort of a cliche uh, is is a a a true and important. I would even say a critical point for the pro life movement to consider: what does a pro life ethic actually look like as it fully fleshes out? Uh, for the ways in which we defend human dignity in in policy and in culture, uh, in our churches, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, and in our everyday life. And I, I think we've seen a lot of progress in ERLC, and particularly uh, our president, Dr. Moore, uh, has been at, uh, at the leading edge of that, unpacking uh, what it means to really be somebody who stands for life. Uh, and we have partners like Herbie Newell of of, uh, of Lifeline Children's Services who are doing incredible work on that. And his book just came out this month uh, on the pro-life ethic and, and, and what it means uh, to be more than just pro-birth and against abortion. But the reason that we are against abortion is because every life is made in the image of God. And that matters from the beginning of life all the way through uh, elderly care uh, and and how we think of end of life issues issues as well. Uh, so I think there's been a lot of a lot of progress on what a comprehensive pro life ethic means and looks like, uh, but especially uh, when when the policy questions uh, come into play, uh, we've got a lot of work still to do. Travis, round us out here. What what is what is something that we are still working on uh, that's undone? There is a public policy dimension to this, but the thing that comes to my mind is our work on sexual abuse that the ERLC has been working on this last year. We've we've made, I think, a couple of important steps forward over the last 12 to 18 months, but every time I think about this issue, I'm just struck by how much work there is left to do to ensure that our churches are both safe uh, from abusers and and from uh, from perpetrators, but also safe for people who have walked through this trauma. And, you know, so God willing, this next year, we'll, we'll make some more progress, but we've got a long road ahead. Um, so if, th- this is a, this is a big question uh, here with our policy issues, but I, but I think it's, I think it's an interesting thought experiment. One of the struggles of an advocacy team is to get people in this town to focus, to focus their efforts on on one thing, whether it be something very, very small, but with a big lasting impact, like the parking tax, you know, to get people to focus on, you know, hey, there's bipartisan consensus, but all you guys have to do is focus, get this in the bill, and let's repeal it. Um, a lot of the work of an advocacy organization is just getting people in D.C. to focus on an issue. So uh, if, if you could get all of Washington, D.C. to focus their work on one big issue – in 2020, what would it be and why? I would answer that with um, focusing on child welfare. You know, we're never going to have a day this side of eternity where there are not vulnerable children. There's always going to be vulnerable parents, vulnerable children, 
people who are addicted to substances. But I think that if all of Washington, D.C. really focused on caring well for our nation's most vulnerable children, we could make a huge dent in the kiddos in foster care and in the number of children waiting to be adopted domestically and around the world. I think we could really uh, see great progress on that. Yeah, there are a number of things you can think of. One of the things that that comes to mind immediately is immigration reform. Now, there's a whole history that goes into why that's necessary, a history of exclusionary laws and more formative laws and acts. But I think for me, you know, the whole immigration conversation speaks to who we are, who we want to be. But most importantly, who we've been, right? Like conversations about the country at its origin, at its heart, I think are very close in proximity to the immigration conversation. And so the way in which we think about it, the way in which we act on it, and ultimately the way in which we solve it is going to say a lot of things about those three pockets. Um, and I'm interested to see what, what, what it is that we say. Um, you just, I, I was, I almost went with immigration to the answer to this question. I think, you know, one other thing to just add about that is I think it does seem that we, that Washington is already really focused on immigration because there's a lot of people talking about it. But the reality is there's very few people actually really thinking about this issue. I mean, this conversation has been dominated by the two ends of the spectrum and everybody else who's gonna be needed to get something passed, in in my experience, have spent very little time thinking about it because it because it seems to them, I think, to be a waste of time. Right. And I think if we were, you know, if we were able to form a, uh, you know, convene a conversation about this issue that uh, that includes this sort of stakeholders beyond those that you know that operate on the polls, I. I mean, I'm not going to say I think we could get somewhere. That that might sound a little bit too naive. No, but, but there's a lot more. We can make some progress. Agreement than it would seem. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think that's right. Yeah. Uh, what the, else is, there, is the there issue that else? I would the issue that I go with is uh, is uh, rising China. Uh, getting Washington to focus on the different dimensions of that, you know, and and I think the, you know, already already DC is starting to kind of refocus around um you know what what's been described as the the end of the the unipolar moment the the moment when the United States was the world's sole superpower and looking into the future to determine what are you know what are the other powers regional or otherwise that are going to balance that balance the United States out but i think coming to grips with china's aspirations what it means on you know an economic military in terms of uh, just uh, geopolitical s- uh, stability, but also a moral level uh, is something I think DC needs to be thinking a lot about. Those are all those are all really good, and I think if if DC did focus on any of those issues for an extended period of time, a lot could happen. Uh, I, I'm going to say uh, I think that this that this town does not and is not currently thinking enough about technology and particularly the disruptions that artificial intelligence. Uh, is going to bring. Did, to did our Jason society. tell you to? Did Jason pay you? To yes, say this, this podcast is actually being sponsored by Jason Thacker's Age of AI book, due out next year. Uh, not really, but but maybe we should uh, maybe we should work on that sponsorship. I'll have to ask him. Uh, but no, we, we should at least uh, have J- him Jason's on once not, it. Uh, no, once we it definitely drops. will have him on. But I, I can say that Jason did not sponsor this answer. Neither did Andrew Yang. Um, I just really believe that the disruptions that are on their way 
are going to be pretty monumental. I don't know if they're coming sooner or later. Uh, I, I know there are some. I, I have friends uh, working in, in Silicon Valley who <laughs> say that some of the predictions uh, about driverless cars like happening in the next couple of years are just way too fantastical that it's just not there yet. Um, but when it comes, it's it's going to be massively disrupting both economically and culturally. I mean, the number of people who make their living driving a vehicle and just the thought of them not having a job mm-hmm. uh, is is crazy. But but tech influences all of the issues that we care about and in, in, in a lot of really, really good ways. I mean, we think about the pro-life movement, how much more pro-life are, is the millennial generation because we grew up seeing sonogram pictures of our brothers and sisters on mm-hmm. the bridge. Like we knew the personhood of of those babies inside the womb. Uh, and and now nowadays people are, you know, posting like 3D videos of babies in the womb. So tech is great and it brings a lot of great advances. Um, but I think from a policy perspective, we have a lot of hard decisions in front of us. Uh, and, and I just wish DC would focus on it sooner rather than later. Mm. I will say I'm listening to this long interview with Elon Musk right now, and I read his biography uh, last year. Yeah, I mean, I, I I do think you know I do think there's a case to be made that some of these changes are are more distant into the future than we might fear that they are. But regardless of when they come, these changes are going to be monstrous. Yes, monumental. Yes. Monstrous is maybe a little too laden. <laughs> but some of them might feel monstrous. Yeah, that's probably they will. True. They will to the people, and you know it. Tech makes life for those of us in in cities. Um, we often experience all the benefits. It's it's people in rural America or or uh, the suburbs that I I don't know that they're experiencing so many of uh, the benefits of tech. They're they're more on the shadow of it. And I think DC has a responsibility uh, to think about you know l- love of neighbor to think about all of our neighbors in in how how can we uh, how can we ensure that. Uh, that we're all better off uh, and and make it into whatever that next era of work is going to look like. All right, so let's move into this final round about why Chelsea is wrong on Home Alone. Uh, but we all, uh, none of us are from D.C., so I think it'd be interesting uh, to know where you celebrated Thanksgiving and where you are going to celebrate Christmas. So for me and my family, we celebrated Thanksgiving here in D.C., uh, but we will be celebrating Christmas in Texas. Chelsea, what about you? I was in Texas for Thanksgiving, and we will be in North Carolina for Christmas. Very fun. Steven? We were in Chicago for Thanksgiving with my side of the family. Um, we will be here for Christmas. We're finally putting our foot down and trying to make people come to us. <laughs> I don't think anybody will be with us on Christmas. That's a valiant uh, effort, though. But we try. I respect it. Travis, what about you and your family? We were here for Thanksgiving. My mother-in-law and her husband came and visited us here. And for Christmas, we are... For the first and maybe last time, driving to Texas with our two girls. I will see you on the road. My dog and I will be on the road driving cross-country as well. It's fun. It's it's cool to see America. Yeah. We, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. My, my two kids can be very loud in the car when they're fighting. <laughs> That's true. Uh, my dog doesn't talk, so it makes <laughs> the drive better. Um, all right. Christmas lightning round here. We're just going to go popcorn style. What is your favorite Christmas carol? Come thou long expected Jesus. All right. Hark the herald. Okay. Angels sing glory to the, the newborn, newborn king. king. Yes, yes. Travis, what about you? So I'll say two. The first is 
Oh Holy Night, but there there's another song on on Sufjan Stevens's Songs for Christmas record. There he does this Christmas version of Come Thou Fount that yes. I honestly it doesn't really feel to me like Christmas until I've listened to that song a few times. That is so because of that album. Yeah. You know it's interesting that song, his his version we played at our at our wedding when I believe our families came in because it's such a good version of that hymn. That that record, and honestly, yet it's a Christmas record. It's very. Funny. It is a Christmas mm-hmm. record. I will say that record basically got me through my second year of law school. That Christmas, <laughs> um, I was in, I was burned out, and go. that that record really pointed right. me to Jesus in that time. I love it. Uh, my favorite Christmas carol is "O Come, All You Faithful." My favorite version of it is "Johnny Swims." Their Christmas album. It's it's short. It's like six songs. That one is right in the middle, and it is it is just amazing. All right, favorite Christmas movie. I will go first. My favorite Christmas movie is Elf. And is that really a surprise no for surprise. anybody who knows me? No surprise. That is not a surprise. No. Yeah, my favorite Christmas movie is Elf. The best Christmas movie, without a doubt, is Die Hard. You know, I I, I don't Christmas movie. I don't really get that whole debate on on Twitter and elsewhere. But maybe that's because I've never seen Die Hard. <gasps> what? Ooh. Yeah. Oh my god! Should you should you even be hosting this podcast? No. Oh, I, yeah, I, yeah. I've, ne- I've never seen it, so I just I don't care. I think it's a funny debate, mainly because you've I, never even I seen like, the movie. You don't have you don't get a say in the debate. No, but I like I like these little cultural things in the ways that people sneak them in. Right. So it's like favorite Christmas character, and it's like a grid of like eight different. You know, you got Buddy the Elf, you got Frosty, you got Rudolph, and then there's Bruce Willis. In Die Hard, and that—that's funny to me. I, I can enjoy the joke. You should watch the movie this year. It's fantastic. All right, all right. It's a good Christmas. Movie. All right, Stephen. What about you? Yippee Jeff. Uh, <laughs> I haven't ever seen that movie. <laughs> no. It's a, it's Is a, that from Die Hard? Yeah. <laughs> all right, Buddy the Elf. What's your favorite movie? Let's go. Uh, I'll say what I've watched with Jude lately, and it's kind of reinvigorated my my like of these movies. One is Tim Allen's The Santa Claus. So good. Oh, wow. Uh, and so good. one that we recently just watched was Arnold Schwarzenegger's Jingle All the Way. Yes. Oh, man. And now Jude wants a Turbo Man. And I <laughs> have to tell him that that does not exist. Oh, surely it exists. Well, it's on Amazon for $500. Are you $500? serious? $500? Oh, oh, my goodness. God. Somebody no, I else love, is selling it. I love Jingle All the Way. It's very funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is that's fantastic, Chelsea. What about you? What is your favorite Christmas movie? We know what it's not, but we don't <laughs> know what Christmas. it is. White Christmas. White Christmas. Yes. So, oh my gosh! So classy. Wow. So classy. Wow. I feel like I have my own finer things club at work. <laughs> no one else is in. <laughs> no one else is in but me. You sit at the marble table, and I feel judged yes. sometimes. Yes, that's awesome. That's amazing. Opinion. All right. Uh, Speaking of Chelsea's strong opinions, uh, we'll start with you on this one. Would you rather have three feet of snow on Christmas morning or no snow at all? No snow. Definitely three feet of snow. Snow for sure. Snow for sure. That was the right answer. Good job, everybody. I do not like. Uh, All right, Chelsea, back to you. Name something about Christmas that most people like, but you do not like. The movie Home Alone. <laughs> and why not? Why don't you like Home Alone? I just, it's not the violence. funny to Child me. welfare. Who would leave their home alone? <laughs> Who would leave their child <laughs> alone? Exactly. There you go. Christmas. That's a good That's argument. Funny. It's That's not a good argument. funny. It's just not funny to okay, me. Okay, you just don't just, find it funny. I'm sorry. I don't. Oh, man. So my, my wife and I like went it. to a uh, Home Alone viewing uh, at the, uh, whatever the theater is down on 8th Street. Miracle where, Theater. Yeah, Miracle Theater. It's this old theater, and they were doing these Christmas matinees on Sundays at like 2 o'clock. And so we went last year, and it was us and like just 
all the 12 year olds on Capitol Hill <laughs> and they were all in there. And it was so funny to, to watch that movie with what the kids were reacting to. And by far the thing that got the theater silent because they were so focused and then had the biggest exclamation when the scene was over was when Macaulay Culkin gets on the sled at the top of the stairs <laughs> and rides it down because all these kids live in row houses where there are stairs. And I'm sure they were all thinking, oh, I've got to try that. And it was hilarious because that's not what I would have expected would have gotten the biggest. But, uh, funny, you know, just another reason why it's a great movie. Uh, Stephen, what about you? What is something about Christmas uh, that a lot of people like but you do not? In 1983, this film came out called A Christmas Story. <laughs> Ebert gave it four stars out of four stars. It has like a 90% Rotten Tomatoes uh, rating. It's about this little boy who wants his rifle for Christmas, and it airs 24 hours uh, on TBS. TNT started it. TBS took it over. Sonny loves it, and I just can't. It's brutal. I just can't do it's it. It's brutal, man. Yeah, that that one, I don't know where the, you know, if, if the majority are with Christmas Story or against it. I don't I'm not, like I'm it. I'm not sure. But apparently my opinions are not popular, so. <laughs> Travis, what about you? Is, is there anything about Christmas that you don't like? The, the um, I don't know if any of you guys' families do the, and I feel bad saying this because my grandmother passed away a few years ago. But I the, feel bad that you just said use guys. Or Texas, you just say y'all. You know, it's funny. <laughs> I, I, I really have stopped saying y'all. Man. It's, I, I've totally stopped saying it. Yeah. I'm glad I you're was, going to Texas for Christmas. It'll be, it'll be good for your vocabulary. I, w- I was on the phone with a buddy of mine. Um, I was a, a, a guy who I used to practice law with, and I said, you guys. And he said, he just stopped. He said, you guys? <laughs> what are you? What's happened to you? I don't even know you anymore. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it was a moment of crisis. <laughs> but <laughs> no, it was. Okay, um, so you don't know if any of yeah, so I y'all's yeah, I, I don't know do if this. I don't know if y'all do this, if okay. y'all's families do this, okay. but the Christmas cookie thing, making all of the different Christmas cookies, yeah, and then we setting don't do it. Man, my grandmother always used to, and I would eat them because she had spent weeks on them, but yeah. because she'd spent so much time on them, they were dry as, a, as dog biscuits <laughs> by the time. Okay, so my my granny does make Christmas cookies, but they're not necessarily like elaborate; they're just red or green. And she puts cream cheese inside the cookie dough batter, and that keeps them from drying out. But see, here's the thing. You got all these pies over there. Why are you going to eat a cookie when you have five pies? What, you want a cookie? <laughs> yes, I do want a cookie. <laughs> I do want a cookie. Uh, so I will say, I mean, there's not much about Christmas that I don't like. I can, I can even get on board with a Christmas story because, you know, buddy the elf over here. I'm wearing a green sweater to record this conversation. <laughs> But I don't like Black Friday. I just do not like it at all. I don't like Mm -hmm. Cyber Monday and all the things that have come. Like, I like getting good deals, but, like, it's very stressful. And my wife thinks that if I don't have my Christmas list fully filled out by Black Friday, that she and and, uh, her mom and my mom are just going to buy us, you know, other shirts. Not the shirts that I want. Um, They're just going to go out and buy stuff, which is You can always return it. I hate doing that, too. Oh, man. Yeah. You are so sentimental. All right. uh, Moving right along. Is there a candy or dessert that you have to have at Christmas? Uh, For me, I'm going to say puppy chow. Are any of you familiar with that uh, treat? It's like a Chex powdered sugar chocolate. It falls in the same category as Christmas cookies for me. I don't know why you do it. All right. You hate it. Okay. I I mean, I'll eat it. I mean, look, I'm not a monster, but I'm just saying. (laughs) Look at sugar. I will eat it. (laughs) Uh, Any other candy or desserts that you just have to have at Christmas time? Candy canes. Okay, candy canes. Oh, my gosh. Candy canes? canes? what do you know? The eight's upset again. (laughs) (laughs) It is the quintessential. Do you like it in your uh, your hot chocolate? 
Put no, a candy I cane eat in. it. I oh, just eat it straight. Wow. You got the candy cane <laughs> dust. <laughs> I would say <laughs> if I if I have not passed like a bowl of Hershey's Kisses somewhere and like just got a handful and just ate them one by one, why? Yeah. Because I just felt like yeah. I have to. Yeah. I feel like it's not Christmas. They have you. great Christmas commercials, and I think maybe that's why. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Travis, what about you? Uh, for, uh, for me, it's my mom's. Uh, she makes this like chocolate tart uh, pie mm. that Ooh. is. Who's the fancy one? Oh yeah, <laughs> looks like you've got a Listen, applicant you, for the final uh, things club. Don't, don't worry. Once you th- once you threw in candy canes, you knocked yourself down <laughs> several several runs. All right, before this thing gets too out of control, uh, final Christmas related question: If you could travel anywhere in the world for Christmas, uh, where would you go and why? I'm going to flip it around, man. I I love having Christmas where we're living. So, okay. I mean, what I wish is that I could convince my family and in-laws and everybody to come to D.C. Because I just – I love it when my kids wake up with their own tree in our own house on yeah. Christmas. Yeah. No, I respect that. I respect that. Yeah, for me, it wouldn't be tied to a geographical location to be that if all of my family could be together. Mm, uh, yeah. it, where the heart is. It's where the heart <laughs> it is. home. It's where that is, you know. Um, <laughs> you, sometimes you want to go where everybody... Sometimes you want to go where everybody... On that heartfelt name. moment. Right, I'm wherever, sorry. yes. Um, no, yes. it's just to have everybody around um, is just what makes that, that day great. Yeah, no, totally. Chelsea, what about you? I'm going to say a place, so don't feel bad. I would <laughs> Family and go somewhere tropical. Oh, because you don't like snow. I don't enjoy cold weather. Right, even though you love white Christmas, you don't want a white Christmas. Exactly. I'm right. living vicariously through the movie. <laughs> okay. And I'd be in Hawaii on a okay. beach. Okay. I do think With the Hawaiian Christmas thing is like really interesting. Yeah. I don't think I could do it. I like that. I, I couldn't either. Well, I could. I'm too sentimental so about happy. it. But but also growing up in Houston, like I've I've had way too many Christmases wearing shorts and a t-shirt. And that's no fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I could go anywhere for Christmas, uh, I I would go either back to Germany or or to uh, I don't know maybe London somewhere somewhere in the UK. Uh, Germany's Christmas markets are yeah, completely markets insane. Um, so that was amazing. Um, but I also feel like a British Christmas would be Dude, a they lot. Get, of fun. They get into Christmas. Would be a lot of fun. fun. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and because I'm not a monster, I would take my whole family uh, with me on this imaginary trip because I do agree with the sentiments. All right, last question here. Will you stay awake until midnight on New Year's Eve? I think I think you can learn a lot about a person uh, to know if they're gonna if they're the type of person that stays awake till midnight on Christmas Eve. Travis. Yeah, I probably will. You will. and and I think my kids are gonna want to also. Oh, have they before? Or are they too? They did last year. Oh, wow. All right. Steven. Yeah, Sonny's birthday is January 1st, oh. so we typically do stay up. and you know, got to be the first one to wish her happy birthday. Got to. Um, Chelsea, what about you? Will you stay awake until midnight? Not a chance. <laughs> Not a chance. <laughs> Not a chance. <laughs> do you remember the last New Year's you saw? No. No? Okay. Our dinner reservations are at 530. <laughs> <laughs> what? Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Are you serious? Oh my gosh. Where where are you guys having dinner? Lubies. I uh I will stay awake until midnight. Let her answer the question. <laughs> Sorry. Where are you guys having dinner? Martin's Tavern uh, Martin's. in DC. We've had friends we've done this with the past couple years and this is uh this is JFK's it is. 
What's the story there? The Kennedys? Um, it is the restaurant where JFK proposed to Jackie, but each president, there are multiple presidents that have tables there. Uh, okay. um, JFK also wrote um, one of his inaugural addresses there. That's pretty cool. It's a cool spot. Have you been there before? I haven't. I it's haven't, best but I've, I've in heard winter because it. it's so cozy. Yeah, yeah. And they, the food's the really good. Booths, yeah. right? They have a little, little sweetheart booth, which is fun. That's Regular cool. booth. That's pretty cool. Uh, yes, I, I will stay up till midnight on New Year's Eve, and I usually <laughs> regret it. We were wondering. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for thanks all right. For well, uh, I hope I hope you enjoyed this uh, this end of the year end of the year podcast. Uh, I will be linking to all of our all of our recommendations uh, in the show notes. But Chelsea, Stephen, Travis, uh, we've done some new things with this podcast in 2019, and I've appreciated uh, each of you coming along for the ride. I know sometimes I don't give you. Uh, enough of a heads up on what we're going to be talking about before I hit the record button. And by which you mean any heads up. Uh, you had two weeks for this episode. <laughs> this, this one we you had, had two weeks. Uh, because this may or may not be the second recording of this particular <laughs> end of year podcast and I learned my lesson. But you guys uh, have just, uh, oh, look at me. Now I'm saying you guys. Y'all have done wow. a great job with this podcast. I appreciate it so very much. Uh, and thanks also to all of you who are listening along with us. Uh, this show has continued to grow over the year, uh, and I hope it grows even more in 2020 because the conversations around this table, I think, are going to be uh, ever important for Christians engaged in the debates of the public square, especially in what is sure to be a rowdy election year. So thanks for joining us. Please pass it along to your friends. Thanks also to our production team, Gary Lancaster and Marie Delph, um, not only for this episode, but the entire year of just incredible work. Gary, you make us sound so much better uh, than we deserve. And Marie, I appreciate you very much as well. Resources from this conversation are available at ERLC.com to equip you and your church. This is Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. Have a very Merry Christmas, and we will see you in 2020.